0: Well, hi there, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Zechariah. We're continuing looking at this book through our digital remote learning here, and I'll invite you to turn with me to Zechariah chapter four. We're gonna finish up the vision of the lampstand today. This is part two of that vision, and we're gonna be looking at verses seven through 14. So verse seven through the end of the chapter here in Zechariah four. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 7 through 14. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you are a flat plain, and he shall bring out the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel will establish the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever despises the day of small things will rejoice when he sees the plummeting stone in the hand of the rubbable, with the seven eyes of Yahweh. They are roaming over all the earth. And I answered and I said to him, What are the two olive trees upon the right of the lampstand and upon its left? And I answered a second time and I said to him, What are the two clusters of the olive trees, which are in the hand of the two gold pipes, which are pouring out the gold oil above them? And he said to me, saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said to him, No, my Lord. And he said, These are the two anointed sons who are standing by the Lord of all the earth. Let's pray quick as we get into this text this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open it up to us this morning. Help us to see what your instruction is for us, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, just to set a bit of brief context for you, and just so you remember what we talked about last week, or if you missed it, uh, we opened up chapter 4 with the vision of the lampstand. And Zechariah saw a lampstand, a gold lampstand, uh, a menorah, as you may be familiar with that word. That's the Hebrew word here. It is a lampstand with seven lamps. It's got a basin above it with, with um, pipes running down from the basin to each of the lamps on the lampstand, providing the oil that fuels the fire in the lamps. So it's quite an interesting image. And we saw last week that the lampstand itself, is symbolic of the temple, all right? That's what it symbolizes, and you can go back and listen and hear all about that last week. Um, The message that we saw, the text was teaching us last week, was that God is powerful enough to accomplish whatever he wants without human effort, right? He doesn't need us at all to accomplish what he wants to do. He can do it by the sheer power of his will. And in our text today, we see that message very clearly, but we also see that while God has the power to accomplish everything that he wills, as we saw last week, he also today uses human agents to do so. God has the power to accomplish everything that he wills, but he loves to use human agents to do so. Okay, and that's the major message that we're seeing in this text. We're going to see that here in verse 7 with the great mountain uh, displaying God's power. Then we'll see that God spurs us on to action by the promises about Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple. And then we have the last part of the vision, which is the two olive trees as part of this lampstand vision. All right. But let's look at verse 7 here, and verse 7 teaches us the very same lesson that we saw last week, so it's a good place to pick up here. Verse 7 says, Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You are a flat plain. Just to, to remember what's going on here in Zechariah, you remember that Israel is in uh, the, the land of Canaan. They've been recently allowed to come back after the Babylonian exile, but they are still under the thumb of the Persian empire. Persia still controls them. And to Zerubbabel and to the rest of the Israelites, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem is no small task. It is a massive project. And there is a lot of, of expectation, I guess you could say, because the previous temple was built by King Solomon. It was gorgeous, gold walls and so on, and this next temple that Zerubbabel is going to build is going to be nothing like Solomon's. It's not going to have the great splendor and glory that Solomon's did. It's going to be a lot more like a makeshift temple, in all honesty. Uh, It's not going to be as grand, and so in the eyes of Zerubbabel, who is the leader of the construction project, as we talked about last week, uh, this is a big task. He's got a lot on his shoulders, and there are probably many people who see this task of building the temple in Zechariah's day as being, I mean, as being a kind of mountain. Building the temple is like moving a mountain or climbing a, a steep mountain or something. It's a, it's a huge task. And God says, hey, listen, in verse 7, Who are you, O great mountain? I will make you a flat plain before Zerubbabel. In other words, we see here that God, no matter how great the task is, no matter how big the problem is, is able to crush mountains, to drive them into the ground, to solve problems, right? This is a powerful God that we serve. This is a powerful God who is promising that this temple will be rebuilt And what's amazing about this is that this this prophecy is taking place in about 520 BC. And Zerubbabel will finish building the temple in 516. So about four years after this prophecy, Zerubbabel will finish. So God is a mountain-crushing God, right? He will take care of them. God will accomplish what he wants to do by his sheer power. That's the same lesson we saw last week. And here again, we see it In verse 7. And uh, the second half of verse 7 says this. And Zerubbabel will bring out the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. The top stone was the last stone that was put at the very top of whatever building you were working on in the ancient world. Because, you know, you, you build from the foundations up. Foundations and the floors and then the walls and then the ceiling and then the top stone, which is the last stone you put at the very top. And God says, Zerubbabel is going to be the one who puts the last stone on the top. In other words, the temple is most assuredly going to be rebuilt. You will put that last stone on and finish the project. God will accomplish what he wants to do. And so that's where we see the power of God at work. In verse 8, we begin to see the new lesson here. Another very important lesson that we need to learn. And the word of Yahweh came to me saying, verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel will rebuild the foundation of this house and his hands will complete it. Now, here we see the human agency being put on display. That is when God wants to do something, so often, he doesn't do it supernaturally. You know, if God wanted to build the temple, he could have just dropped the temple out of the sky or made it appear out of thin air, completely reconstructed. But no, that's not how God does things most of the time. What he normally does is he uses human agents. And here, he's going to use the hands of Zerubbabel or Uh, more fully speaking, he's going to use Zerubbabel's leadership and all of the work of the Israelites who are helping Zerubbabel to rebuild this temple. God's going to use human agents to accomplish what he wants to do, to rebuild the foundation and to complete the temple. And this is how you shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you, the angel says. This is how you'll know that I'm not lying. It's because this is going to happen. One of the tests of a false prophet or a false prophecy is that the prophecy doesn't come to pass. The angel says, hey, you'll know that Yahweh sent me to you when you see that this actually does happen. And God's going to use Zerubbabel, the chief architect and the, the leader of the construction to rebuild his temple in Jerusalem. And then in verse 10, we get some encouragement. For whoever despises the day of small things will rejoice when he sees the plummeting stone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now to us uh, Americans, we, we might not quite understand exactly what he's getting at here. Uh, some of your English translations might say um, when they see the plumb line. And maybe you're familiar with what a plumb line is, maybe not. In the Hebrew, it literally just says the plummeting stone. And the reason for that is because One of the uh, ways that the ancient people would measure uh, when they're building walls or or something like that, one of the ways that they would measure uh, straight up and down to figure out if their wall was crooked or not is they would take a stone and they would tie a string to that stone and they would go to the top of whatever they were building and they would drop the stone. And of course that would pull a lot of the string down and he would hold on to the other end of the string until the rock hit the ground at the bottom of the wall. And what the builder would do is he would pull on the string to bring the rock slightly off the ground so it's suspended in the air, and then he'd wait for the rock to stop swaying back and forth. And once that happened, because gravity is going to pull you know, the rock and the string in a straight line, he can measure how level his wall is relative to the straightness of the string. So it's a great way to check for whether or not your wall is level. It's Is it straight up and down? you know when I was involved in construction projects growing up, we used this thing called a level right and you're I'm sure you're familiar with it it's the green tube right with the liquid in it, and then you've got the bubble, and the bubble tells you whether your thing is level straight up and down, or you know whatever uh, they didn't have those in the ancient world. they used you know a, a rock and a string, and it works just as well, honestly so what's being described here is that Zerubbabel is going to be using tools of construction. And the angel says, whoever despises the day of small things will rejoice when they see Zerubbabel using these tools of construction. Now, the day of small things, this term here, day of small things, is simply simply the idea of doing a whole bunch of little things day by day. You can imagine that a lot of people might be Uh, sort of in Zechariah's day might be a little discouraged because at least at the time of this prophecy the foundation has hardly been laid the building is not constructed the temple doesn't have walls up yet the temple is at the very beginning stages and they're they're kind of like man this is going to take forever and they're discouraged by that And Zechariah says, no, don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise the little things that are necessary for you to do day by day in order for big things to happen. Because let me tell you something. If you do despise the day of small things, eventually you're actually going to rejoice when you see that big things have happened, when you see Zerubbabel dropping that rock to measure the straightness of the walls of the temple. That presupposes that there are walls of the temple. So in other words, Zechariah is saying that, that the project of the temple is going to, you know, it's going to happen in baby steps. It's not going to happen overnight. Little by little by little, day by day, these walls are going to go up, and suddenly you're going to look out the window of your little house in Jerusalem, and you're going to see Zerubbabel measuring the straightness of completed walls, and you're going to rejoice, and you're going to be comforted in seeing that God is at work. And not only that, but at the end of verse 10, there's a promise that the seven eyes of Yahweh are going to be roaming the whole earth. That is that God is going to see everything, and he's going to be watching his temple being rebuilt. By the way, you remember at the the end of chapter 3, we talked about how there was a a stone with seven eyes. You may remember that. This is chapter 3, verse 9. Or no, sorry. uh, Yes, chapter 3, verse 9. And Uh, When Zechariah is prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, we're told the Messiah is going to be the servant of God, and he's going to be the branch, and then he's going to be a stone with seven eyes. And just in passing, here we see that idea of seven eyes describing the omniscience of God, that is that he knows everything and he sees everything. Seven eyes is a divine quality. And so if you go back to chapter 3, verse 9, and you see that prophecy about the Messiah being a stone with seven eyes, you can see that the Messiah is being described as being divine. Anyway, that's just something in passing. Back to the original thought here. Verse 10 is encouragement for people who are discouraged. They're discouraged by all the little things. They don't see the big things. But God promises one day you will see the big things, and you're going to see how all of those little things day by day actually added up to be something great we'll talk about that more uh, at the end here. Then we get to verse 11 and verse 11 is going to finish off the vision of the lampstand and I said and I answered and I said to him that is to the angel, what are the two olive trees upon the right of the lampstand and on the left. And I answered a second time and I said, what are the two branches of the lampstand, which are in the hand of the two gold pipes, which are pouring out gold oil above them? And he answered saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he said to me, and here's the, um, this is the explanation. This is all we get. These are the two anointed sons standing by the Lord of all the earth. All right, that is all the explanation that Zechariah gets for the two olive trees. We know that the menorah or the lampstand is symbolic of the temple. And we've learned a whole bunch of other things from God here. Zerubbabel is going to rebuild the temple and all those kinds of things. That's what this vision is about. And then he asks what the two olive trees are. And then the angel says, yeah, they're the two anointed sons. And if you are attempting to understand the passage, that ought to confuse you. Because you're like, okay, well, who are the two anointed sons? Chapter 5 doesn't tell us anything. Chapter 5, verse 1, begins a new vision. This is all we get, verse 14, of explanation for what the two olive trees are. And if you're just reading along in the text and you're not, not really trying to understand it, you probably won't notice this, but as I'm trying to understand it and figure out what the symbols actually mean, I'm like, okay, I don't know. Who are the two anointed sons? What, what does that mean? And you'll notice the commentators are somewhat, if you if you read commentaries at all, you'll notice that commentators are, are somewhat baffled by this. They're not really sure, a lot of them. Some of them have tried to in, like import New Testament ideas to figure out what these two sons are. Some people have said, well, the, the two anointed sons here are the law and the gospel. I could see a, a lot of Lutherans saying something like that, right? Uh, some people have said Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they're the two anointed sons. Or maybe the Old and the New Testaments. Or maybe Moses and Elijah. Uh, frankly, I, I don't think any of those options are very good options. I think that they're, they're totally out of context for what Zechariah is talking about. I think the key to analyzing this is to remember Zechariah knows that he hasn't really explained this, right? He, he just, he's just laying this statement here and he wants the reader to figure out who the two anointed sons are. And he wants them to do it using, I would assume, context. And here's what's interesting. There are two distinct characters that appear throughout Zechariah up to this point that we've been looking at in our text, Uh, if you include the the previous couple chapters. And those two characters are Joshua the high priest from chapter 3. Remember, not Joshua who led the people of Israel into Canaan and conquered Jericho and so on. No, different Joshua. This is the Joshua who was the high priest during Zechariah's day. So Joshua the high priest, he's one character. And then you have Zerubbabel. Those are the only two characters by name that we have in the text. And here's what's interesting. If you use scripture to interpret scripture and you look around in the Old Testament, what you'll find is that there are three offices that require the anointing of oil in order to consecrate that office or in order to initiate someone in that particular office. And that's important because these these two olive trees are described as the two anointed ones. So oil has got to have something to do with us here. In the Old Testament, the prophethood. uh, So if someone is going to become a prophet, they're anointed with oil. Then you have the priesthood. Priests are going to become priests. They have to be anointed. And then you have the kingship, the throne. Kings are anointed with oil. You remember David and Saul were both anointed. And here's what's interesting. Joshua, the high priest is part of an office that requires anointing. So he certainly fits the bill for what's required here for the one office or for the one anointed person. And then you've got the second person, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is acting in Zechariah and in the history around Zechariah in this rebuilding of the temple and commanding the people. He is acting as a kind of king. Now he's not literally a king, right? The the Persian Empire is still in control, but Zerubbabel is a leader, and he's behaving in a kingly way. He's commanding the people. He is orchestrating the rebuilding of the city and uh, establishing guards to to um, keep people safe. And he is he's commanding the people. He's he's ruling. He's a kind of king. And what's interesting even is if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you were to look at the genealogy of Jesus, you don't have to do that now, but if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, Zerubbabel is listed as a descendant of David and a legal right to the throne. Interesting. Zerubbabel is a descendant of David and Jesus is a descendant of Zerubbabel. This is, one of the, this is one of the ways that Jesus is, uh, can be king as he is in the, the kingly line. Zerubbabel is in that kingly line. So there's a certain sense in which we can say that in a, before God, Zerubbabel is a legal king in Israel, even though he's not an actual king, sim- because he is, he's one of the descendants of the kingly line. And so he's, in God's eyes, an anointed legal king. And this is actually what most commentators will argue, by the way, that the the two anointed ones here are Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, here's why that's important. You may be saying, all right, uh, I can see some of the logic here. It still seems a little vague. Why does this matter anyway? Well, here's why it matters. You remember I said earlier that the lampstand symbolizes the temple, right? Now... In the vision, in in, um, the second part of the vision here, verse 12, Zechariah asks, what are the two branches of the olive trees? And what he makes very clear is that these olive trees, which are representing the two anointed ones, Joshua and Zerubbabel, these olive trees are providing the oil for the lampstand, Apparently, in verse 12, we see that the branches of the olive trees have pipes running from them, and they are going to the lamps, bringing the oil, pouring out the oil, Zechariah says. So these olive trees are fueling the lampstand. So if the lampstand then represents the temple... And the two olive trees are Zerubbabel and Joshua. What we have here is Joshua and Zerubbabel fueling the work of the temple. And I think that's what's significant here. That's what's being described. On the one hand, you have Zerubbabel fueling the building of the structure of the temple, assembling the people, getting the supplies, doing the work, laying the stone, doing the small things, measuring the walls, all of these things Zerubbabel is doing. He's leading the people. He's ruling them, fueling the building of the temple. And then you've got the high priest Joshua, who in chapter three was purified. Remember that? His his robes of excrement and, and disgusting robes were replaced with white robes, and his sin was forgiven, and he was purified to act on behalf of God's people. And so Joshua, the high priest, is fueling the temple in the sense that he is leading the worship of Yahweh. And so what you have here, in essence, is you have the kingly office and the priestly office at work in human agents to accomplish God's purposes. Again, in other words, God will accomplish his purposes and he uses human agents to do so. As the olive trees in the vision fuel the lampstand, so Zerubbabel and Joshua fuel the temple. That's the vision. And all of this is meant to encourage the people of God in this day to recognize God will build his temple. And he'll do it through human agency. And this is a great lesson for us Today, is it not, to recognize this great truth? We need to hear this. And we need to hear this because, you know, God does not need human beings to help him, right? He's, he's not someone who, who needs our assistance. No, he can do it himself. He can do whatever he wants to do himself, but he chooses to use us. He chooses to use us in very specific ways. And just to give you some examples of this as we wrap up today, think about... Ministers of the Word of God, for a second. You know, if God wanted to, he could show up in the pulpit on Sunday mornings and on Sunday evenings and on Wednesday nights or whatever, and he could preach to the people. Could he not? He could preach to us. I bet he'd preach some good sermons. God could do it if he wanted to, but he doesn't do that, does he? He chooses to use normal human means to bring his word to his people. The normal. The small things. Day by day the small things. The, the ministers. The pastors. Who spent years in school studying scripture. And studying Hebrew and Greek. And theology and philosophy. And church history. And all of these things. He uses the normal people. Who worked hard day by day. Hour by hour preparing sermons and teaching. And all these kinds of things. This is how God works the little things that add up to the big things that he accomplishes. And that's how he uses ministers. But you know, God doesn't just, you know, he doesn't just use ministers to accomplish what he wants. No, he can bring his word to people through evangelism for any any Christian or through Bible studies for any Christian. Could God go out on the street and preach himself and convert people and do evangelism? Of course he could. But he uses you and me to do that. But in an even more normal way that God uses us. And, you know, sometimes we think that, that, that um, you know, God normally expands his church through revivals or through, you know, great evangelists like Billy Graham or something. And certainly God does expand his church using things like that. We don't want to minimize the importance of you know, many people coming to Christ at one time. It's certainly a wonderful thing. But, you know, the normal way that God expands his church is through not evangelism, is not through revivals, but is rather through the normal operations of his church and particularly the family. God's normal way of expanding the people of God is through bearing children and raising them up and nurturing them in the admonition of the Lord. That's how God normally expands his church. It's through procreation and the raising of godly children. And to us, that can seem like such a small thing. It can seem like, well, if all I've done in my life is I worked an eight to five job five days a week and I raised a couple of kids, boy, I really didn't do much in my life. No, you've done a great thing. You have just participated in God's normal way of expanding the kingdom. Don't despise the day of little things. Don't despise the little things that you do or the seemingly little things that you do. They are big things to God because he works through normal, everyday human people to accomplish the great, big, and fantastic things that he has purposed to do before the foundations of the world. See, just like Zerubbabel, let's use our hands to build the temple. And like he, trusting in the power of God, worked hard to rebuild that temple in Jerusalem, so let us work hard now to rebuild the spiritual temple that we called the church. Don't despise the day of little things. Use those little things because one day they're going to be big things and we will rejoice greatly when we see what God is doing and what God has done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text in Zechariah. We thank you for the way that you use us and even when we don't realize that you're using us. Give us, um, give us strength and give us encouragement in this passage to see that what we do is not little. Help us not to despise the day of little things. Help us not to despise the little things we do for you. Help us to see the big things and trust in you that you're going to accomplish what you want to do. In the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.